stimulated me. So, meaning that I try to rethink what I worked at with Whitehead in terms of the stuff that Graham is also doing. Now, um, this involves some disagreements and, in fact, just the volume coming out later this year, hopefully, the speculative term, which Graham and Levi are two of the three editors that will contain my critique of Graham together with his response. And I gave that critique actually in Atlanta the last time I was here at the site of the Literature Science and the Arts Conference last November. So, what I'm going to try to do today is to, I mean, obviously it'll express some of the same points in which I disagree with Graham, but it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I see I'll be drawing on him, but not drawing the way of saying this is my critique of where Graham goes wrong, just as much as to take my ideas which draw on him, but do it in what he would see as a wrong-headed way and see what I can get from them. The other things I think Graham's talk, you know, a lot of the stuff I touch on came out of the Graham's talk and discussion. And especially it's the questions that we could raise briefly about panpsychism, or the theory that everything has a certain degree of mentality. And at the description I had, in the, which is in the program or on the website, was that that's what I was going to talk about. What turned out is that I basically wrote what was like what led up to that, so I don't actually get to it except in very brief at the very end. But so what I'm going to try to do is sort of go through some steps which would lead me to the threshold of this, what I still haven't written about panpsychism in relation both to Whitehead and to object-oriented thought. Okay, so my the title of my talk is The Universe of Things, and as you'll see, in, there are a couple of literary as well as philosophical references for that phrase, which I'll cover. Okay. Okay, I'd like to begin with a short story called The Universe of Things by the British science fiction writer Gwyneth Jones. The story is about an encounter between a human being and an alien, or an alien, a sentient alien from another planet. It's part of Jones's Aleutian Cycle, a series of novels and stories which are all set in the same world in a near-future Earth that is visited, colonized, and ultimately abandoned by an alien humanoid race, known as the Aleutians. The Aleutians have technologies that are superior to ours, and also their indeterminate gender, which human beings tend to find to be uncomfortable with. If anything, the Aleutians vaguely seem to be more feminine than masculine, but human beings usually refer to them with the pronoun it. And that's actually a very important part of this whole cycle. I'll only have it in the background for it saying here, but it's part of setting the stage. For both these reasons, the illusion's presence on our planet in these stories and the novels is traumatic and humiliating. It's not that they do anything particularly nasty or unpleasant, but their very existence somehow diminishes us, so it diminishes human beings. We find ourselves in a position of abject dependency. Even the most affluent white male Westerners must now count themselves as among the ranks of the colonized in these stories. Okay, the illusion's presence on Earth, among other things, undermines our inveterate anthropocentrism, and this is something which is related to, I think, what object oriented ontology is trying to do. Man is no longer the measure of all things. We can no longer think of ourselves in the world of these stories as being special, much less take ourselves to be the pinnacle of creation. Now, in general, modernity is often seen as a long series of displacements and decentering. So the human, to put it in a larger history, just think of Copernicus, Darwin, and Freud, 
that matter of Deep Blue defeating Gary Kasparov. Jones's illusions mark the Neptune's ultra of his tendency. Their effortless superiority leaves us blank and at a loss. And this is not just a matter of first contact, which is frequently mythologized in lots of science fiction stories. Um, because Jane Jones's aliens stay on the Earth for centuries, and it's not the context so much as their continual presence in our midst which drives her narratives. The fact of their existence never loses its disturbing edge, even as at the same time it comes to be woven into the habits and assumptions of everyday human life. In this way, the illusions cycle is a narrative about, I suggest, among other things, the adjustments forced upon us as we enter a post-human era. And I'd suggest just a general proposition, though I won't go to any much more, that the emergence of, of things like something like object-oriented ontology has a lot to do with this kind of sense of being in a post-human era. So the kind of centrality of human consciousness, everything can no longer be taken for granted the way it was for the last several centuries. Okay, within Gwyneth Jones's overall illusion cycle, the universe of things focuses upon one of the most striking differences between the aliens and ourselves. The fact that their technology, unlike ours, is intrinsically alive. In fact, the illusion's tools are biological extrusions of themselves. And this is a quote from the story. They had tools that crept, slithered, flew, but they had made these things. They built things with bacteria. Bacteria which were themselves traceable to the alien's own intestinal flora, infecting everything. So you might say the fact that the illusions literalize Marshall McLuhan's thesis that all media are prosthetic extensions of ourselves. And in, in these science fiction stories, they literally are prosthetic extensions of the beings who use them. The illusions exteriorize themselves in every aspect of their environment. Their networks extend far beyond their own bodies and immediate surroundings. They're even able to share feelings and memories, as these are chemically encoded in the slime that they exude and exchange with one another. In consequence, I'm going to quote from the story, the aliens could not experience being apart. There were no parts in their continuum, no spaces, no dividing edges, end of quote. So the aliens are alive in the midst of an entirely living world. The living world the illusion stands in the story, and I've also in the meta thinking about the story I'm doing now, stands in sharp and bitter contrast to the way that we remain trapped by our sad Cartesian legacy. We tend to dread our own mechanical, me mechanistic technologies, even as we use them more and more. Because we can't escape the pervasive sense, endemic to Western culture, that we're alone in our aliveness, trapped in a world of dead or really passive matter. Our own machines, Jones writes in the story, promised but they could not perform. They remained things, and people remained lonely. It seems to some of the people in Jones' story that in contrast to this human situation, another quote, the aliens have the solution to human isolation, a talking world, a world with eyes, a companionship that God dreams of. The universe of things specifically tells the story of a human auto mechanic whom an alien hires to fix its car. The mechanic, like most human beings, both regards the aliens with awe and at the same time feels a bit afraid of them. He's honored and humble, but also made extremely anxious and a little bit creeped out when the alien entrusts the repair of its vehicle to him. He doesn't know why he's been singled out for this job, nor does he even know why the alien uses Earth technology, human-built cars, which is an inferior, ecologically harmful technology in the first place when the illusions themselves have a mode of living transport which is superior. In any case, the mechanic focused all, focuses all of his confused feelings upon the car. The car becomes, his, his fixing this alien's car becomes the focus of all his attitudes about you know, liveness and deadness and decentering the human and so on. Wanting to maintain the mystique of craftsmanship, which is the one thing that he still feels proud of as a human being facing these conditions where humans are decentered. The one sort of human pride that remains to be turns off all the machines that usually do the repair work in the shop and resolves to fix the alien's car by hand. 
Now, what happens in the story is that in the course of a long evening, as the mechanic works in the car, he has an epiphany, or perhaps that hallucination, it's hard to tell which. He experiences for a moment what the alien's living world is actually like. His own tools seem to come alive. The experience is disconcerting, to say the least, and here's a quote. He stared at the spanner in his hand until a rod of metal lost its shine. Skin crept over it. The adjustable socket became a cup of muscle, pursed like an anus, wet lips drawn back by a twist of a tumescent rod. And then a quote. The living world is obscene and pornographic. Existence is suffocating and unbearable. Everything is suffused by another quote. Living slime, full of self-human substance. And then the quote. But somehow this, living, this human substance has been rendered other. This is what happens when you have succeeded in entering the alien mind, seeing the world through alien eyes, which is another quote of that story. So the mechanic is terrified and nauseated after wishfully thinking all of we could be like the aliens when it actually happens, he can't stand it. All he wants to do is to return to the loneliness and security of the customary human world, a world in which objects remain at a proper distance from us because they are dead and safe. Okay, so the universe of things as a story encourages us to think about the liveliness of objects and about the ways that they are related to us. Even when things are shaped by us and constrained to serve our purposes, they turn out to have an independent life of their own. The story suggests that things are actants, as Bruno Latour put it, every bit as much as we ourselves are. When we make use of them, we're really aligning ourselves with them. Again, another notion of Latour. But alliance also means dependency. We discover that we cannot do anything without our tools' help. The story therefore passes something like Jane Bennett's vital materialism, the recognition, as Bennett says, that vitality is shared by all things rather than being limited to ourselves alone. But even as the story intimates this, it also dramatizes our fear of the likeness of things. In the mechanic's experience, wonder turns into dread. The sense that everything is filled with the human substance flips over into the paranoid vision of a menacing alien vitality. The magical, fully animate world becomes a nightmare of Cthulhu. Somehow we're threatened by the vibrancy of matter. We need to escape the excessive proximity of things. We're desperate to reassure ourselves that in spite of everything, objects are, after all, passive and inert. Okay, it's important that Jones's story is not about things in general. Rather, it's specifically about tools. For tools are properly objects in relation to which we most fully confront the paradoxes of non-human actants, of vital matter, and of object independence. On the one hand, tools are extensions of ourselves, things that we have shaped explicitly in order to serve our needs. They're supposed to be subordinate to our will. And indeed, most of the time, we don't even think about our tools. They're simply there. As Heidegger puts it, at least in the most common interpretation of his work, which you just heard Graham criticize, and I'll come back to Graham's criticism and rereading of Heidegger in a minute, tools are ready to hand. And yet, the very availability of our tools gives them a strange autonomy and vitality. We discover that we cannot just use them. We must learn to work with them rather than against them. We have to accommodate their nature and their needs as well as our own. And I'd say also, to give another reference, this does fit in, I think, also with aspects of McLuhan's ideas about media, because McLuhan says medias are an extension of ourselves, but a lot of his analysis has to do with the fact that even if the medias are, media are, in fact, extensions of our bodies and minds, that they become these kinds of independent environments and they become things which we can't just control. It's not just a kind of sense of alienation which can then be recuperated. It's a much more vivid sense of the media become alive in our own right. Okay. My mention of Heidegger's readiness to hand was not fortuitous, for I think the universe of things could well be read as an allegory of what Graham Harmon, expanding Heidegger's concept, calls tool being, which is the title of Graham's first book. Harmon explicitly criticizes the common reading of readiness to hand in pragmatic terms, which is the way that I implicitly use the concept a moment ago. According to Harmon, readiness to hand does not mean, as you already heard him just say a few minutes ago, 
a practical handling of things as opposed to explicit theorization. Rather, the ready at the hand in Graham's reading has a much broader reach. It does not consist, and here I'm just quoting from his book, too, it does not consist solely of human devices. We can speak of the readiness to hand even of dead moths and of tremors on a distant sun. As useless, and that word in quotes, as these things may be, they still exert their reality within the total system of entities. End of quote. Things are active and interactive far beyond any measure of their presence to us. Tool being does not apply just to the human use of things for harmony. It is far more fundamental ontological, it is a far more fundamental ontological category. Witness Jones' story begins with a familiar sense of tools as object of use, but it culminates in mechanics discovery that the universe of things has a far deeper reality. Okay, the crucial thing about tool being in Harmon's analysis is that it involves a radical withdrawal from simple presence. Throughout Heidegger's work, Harmon says, and here's another quote, the single error to be guarded against lies in its ingrained habit, our ingrained habit of regarding beings as present at hand, as representable in terms of delineable properties, rather than acknowledging the actus of being what they are. So when something's present, and this is Heidegger's criticism of presence, which people like Derrida later pick up on, it's the idea that the qualities we observe the thing is a bundle of what the empirics is, you know, the thing's a bundle of qualities, and these qualities we observe are what it means for an object to be present. And Heidegger and Harman radicalizing Heidegger say that objects withdraw from this kind of presence. To the contrary, Heidegger always insists that in Graham's words, what exists outside of human context does not have the mode of being of presence at hand. To reduce a thing to its presence at hand, or to the list of its delineable properties, is precisely to regard that thing as only the correlate of a consciousness perceiving it. And this is where you get Mayasu's, what Mayasu calls correlationism, which Graham was talking about in his talk. Um, but a thing always is more than its qualities. It always exists and acts independently of and in excess over the particular ways that we grasp and comprehend it. And this is why Harmon credits Heidegger with providing us a way out from correlationism and towards the elaboration of an object-oriented ontology, this awareness of things being, being independent of the qualities its presence presents to us. Okay, so Harmon argues that all beings are tool beings. None of them may be simply reduced to presence at hand into a simple list of properties. But tool being and itself is double, and this is, again, not Harmon's own thought, but Harmon is paraphrasing Heidegger. Harmon says that for Heidegger, tool being has two distinct senses. It is the performance of a withering subterranean force, but a force that also acts up to summon up some explicitly encountered reality. On the one hand, in Harmon's summary, tool being, and this is all sort of pastiche of quotes from Harmon's paraphrase of Heidegger, tool beings proceed into the work of an unnoticed background, dissolved into a general equipmental effect, entities vanish into a unique system of reference, losing their singularity. End of quote. This is what allows us to take our tools for granted. We don't even notice them as objects most of the time. And this would get into the way I wrote for Graham's discussion of Heidegger's important notion of the as structure, but I'll leave that aside for now. We rely on, on things' equipmental effect, forgetting that this efficacy is itself the result of a vast network of alliances, mediation, and relays. And that's obviously a way of linking, as Graham also does, linking Heidegger to Latour, despite Latour's own horror at such a connection. Such is the initial complacent assumption of the mechanic of the universe of things, that we can just rely on the things' equipmental effect. But at the same time, and on the other hand, the tool being, besides the problem, is withdrawal into a subterranean kind of system of reference, tool being involves a counter-movement, a reversal. This reversal is epitomized by Heidegger in the form of the broken tool. When a tool or a thing fails to function as expected, then the excess of its being is suddenly revealed to us. As Harman wonderfully describes it, 
summarizing but also radicalizing Heidegger, there is another quote from Herman's book, in uprising distinct elements, a surge of minerals and battle flags and tropical cats into the field of life, where each object bears a certain demeanor and seduces us in a specific way, bombarding us with its energies like a miniature neutron star. End of quote. The tool is more than present. It stands forth too actively and aggressively for me to posit it at present at hand, which means that I have a subject I would just have a subject in relation to it. But as I say, the tool or thing becomes alive as a mechanic suddenly experiences in the story. And this uprising or unveiling is the very basis of object-oriented ontology, which Herman describes as an effort, again from the same book, to do justice to the distinctive force of these specific objects, the eruption of personalities from this empire of being. Okay, now what I want to do now, I take this analysis from the beginning of Harmon's first book is fundamental, even though Harmon himself comes to reject it in the course of the book. For although Harmon starts out with Heidegger's understanding of the tool and the broken tool, he quickly moves on to different ground. The first part of tool being describes a double movement, or treated to the universal referentiality of equipment on the one hand, or into an oppressive totality withdrawn from view and devoid of particular beings. Followed by the eruption of absolute singularities, each object's emergence, Again, another quote from Harmon, defining a fateful tear in the context of meaning, the birth of an individual power to be reckoned with. But in the course of the book, Harmon collapses this dichotomy. He argues instead, and this leads to this latter part of Tulin and then in his subsequent books and articles, that the object's withdrawal from presence is a retreat from referentiality as well. This means that, again, another quote, the tool being of a thing exists in vacuum sealed isolation, exceeding any of the relations that might touch it. And here I'm summarizing something you've already heard in Graham's talk earlier this morning. Instead of swinging between an excess of referentiality on the one hand and an excess of singularity on the other, in, in Graham's formulation, each object both disappears into and emerges out of its own inaccessible vacuum. When Harmon develops this, he carefully notes that as a result of this reformulation, quote, both Heidegger and Whitehead become direct opponents of my theory, unquote. Okay, now, as I mentioned earlier, I've taken Whitehead's side, and I guess Heidegger's side too, but I didn't quite realize it, against Harmon in the article that I wrote for this speculative term, which he has a reply to when that volume comes out. I won't pursue the polemic here. Instead, I simply want to continue to explore the further positive implications of what I see for the double movement that Harmon finds in Heidegger's account of tools and broken tools, even though Harmon abandons this. Indeed, I think this doubleness is crucial to this story, like the science fiction story I started with. The universe of things turns precisely upon the way that objects are irreducible to simple presence, and it also suggests that this excess has two complementary aspects. The universe of things is in the first place altogether systematic and auto-referential as a ubiquitous medium or extension of ourselves. It stretches well beyond whatever is immediately apparent or present. It turns upon the irony that when human substance is everywhere, that substance gets stretched and scattered beyond recognition. But in the second place, the universe of things is also characterized by the obscene eruption of individual objects in all their liveliness and singularity. The poor auto mechanic experiences the worst of both sides of tool being. He feels stifled by the oppressive totality into which his tools have been drawn, but he also feels menaced by the uprising of tools as distinct elements flaunting their autonomy and demanding his aroused attention. This double movement of tool being as both retreat and eruption points to two alternative but coexisting ways in which things are forever escaping our grasp. What retreat and eruption have in common is that they are alike irreducible to any correlation of subject and object or of human perceiver and world perceived. They are both modes of escape from presence and from a human-centered context. If I cannot control and instrumentalize a thing, this is both because it draws me into extended referential networks whose full ramifications I cannot possibly trace, 
and because the singularity bursting forth stuns me in excess of anything that I could possibly posit about it. Thus, tool being is irreducible to use in the same way and for the same reasons that it's irreducible to presence. This is Harman's rejection of the pragmatist reading of Heidegger. This means that when objects encounter one another, the basic mode of their relation is neither theoretical nor practical, and neither epistemological nor ethical. Rather, before either of these, every relation between objects is an aesthetic one. This is something Harman, Harman approaches in own way when he says that aesthetics becomes first philosophy when you consider the paradoxes of vicarious causation or occasionalism in object independence. And I, I guess part of what I'm doing is I'm expanding, but also giving a more Kantian reading than Graham of how I think about aesthetics. I would argue aesthetics has to do precisely with the singularity and supplementarity of things. That is to say, it has to do with objects insofar as they cannot be cognized or subordinated to categories, and also insofar as they cannot be utilized or normatively regulated or defined according to rules. And again, I'm taking this from, this is in my book on Whitehead, where I see Whitehead as taking a particular route through Kant's aesthetics. And when Kant says that beauty is something which can be cognized in concepts, I think this is, this is, this, the development of this is, is what I'm trying to get at here. Okay. No matter how intensely I comprehend an object, and no matter how pragmatically or instrumentally I make use of an object, there's still something of it that escapes my categorizations. Even when I obliterate an object, but assume it utterly, there's still some aspect of it that I have not managed to incorporate, some force to it that I have not been able to overcome. The thing withdraws into its network, lure, network, luring me into the shadows, and it bursts forth in a splendor that dazzles and blinds me. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm following what Harmon's saying, but I'm trying to do it in different ways. The thing withdraws into its network on the one hand, and it bursts forth in a splendor that dazzles and blinds me on the other hand. This dazzlement, I think, is what Harman call, calls a lure and when he writes about aesthetics in his book, Guerrilla Metaphysics. The sense of a thing's existence apart from and over and above its own qualities. A lure has to do with the showing forth of things and a violent eruption that tears apart, as in the earlier quote I have, tears apart the contexture of meaning. Such an aesthetic event, such an encounter with a thing is profoundly or subtly disruptive. It alters the parameters of the world, it ruptures every consensus, it introduces a novelty, something that does not belong to the already said, and something that does not sit well with any, within any previously agreed upon horizon of meaning. But there is also a kind of aesthetic event that has to do with the retreat of things beyond their grasp and into the work of an unnoticed background. This is what we might call, or I'll suggest that we could call, until I get a better word, metamorphosis, in contrast to allure. Metamorphosis is a kind of wayward attraction, a movement of withdrawal and substitution, a continual play of becoming. In metamorphosis, it's not the thing itself that attracts us over and above its qualities. It is rather the very unsteadiness of the thing that draws us onward as it ripples and shifts in a kind of protean wavering. All of the things' attributes become unstable as it slips and slides beneath them, retreating into the background, relating and referring beyond our capacity to follow. In the movement of allure, the web of meaning is ruptured as the thing emerges bodily from its context. But in the movement of metamorphosis, meaning is multiplied and extended, echoed and distorted, propagated to infinity, as the thing loses itself in the network of its own ramifying traces. The order mechanic and the universe of things is overwhelmed by both of these movements at once. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking Graham's notion of that kind of, the kind of contact we do have with objects, which objects have with one another, is a kind of an aesthetic one. And, but I'm, I'm trying to push this, suggest there are other modes of aesthetics besides the one that Graham writes about. And also now, here comes the move where I, as I seem to always do with everything, introduce Whitehead. 
to try to make sense of it. Okay, both allure and metamorphosis are, in, are instances of what Whitehead calls lures for feeling. Now, this is one of Whitehead's most peculiar expressions, but I think that it describes the basis of aesthetic attraction and repulsion. A lure is anything that in some way works to capture my attention. It may entice me or incite me or seduce me or tempt me or compel me or even bludgeon and bully me. But in any case, it addresses me from beyond. It's something that doesn't come from myself. The lure is also what Whitehead calls a proposition, another one of his curious terminological repurposing of words. Whitehead defines, says that in proposition, Whitehead does not primarily mean logical propositions. He says logical propositions, which is what he spent the first half of his life working on, are only a minor special case of propositions more generally. More generally, he defines propositions as tales that perhaps might be told about particular actualities. In other words, a proposition proposes some sort of potentiality to be it holds forth the prospect of a difference. And this potentiality or difference is not a general state of the world. It's always anchored in some particular actuality. So a proposition is not a general statement about everything. It's about it always relates to one particular thing, which offers me something that doesn't fit into the categories that I have or that I impose or that I would seek to put it in. Whitehead thus agrees with Husserl, Heidegger, and Harman that they do not encounter things just as bare packets of sensor or as present hand bundles of qualities. Rather, we should say that things proposition me in, in the various senses of that word, or in the sexual sense, or that they offer me a certain promise of happiness, which is Stendhal's description of beauty. And I think, again, this has to do with the, the way aesthetics, I think, becomes central here. The qualities of things, and more precisely what Whitehead calls the eternal objects that are incarnated in them, are only the bait that these things hold out to me in order to draw me towards it. It may be that a particular thing dazzles me when it rises up from the depths, or it may be that it amuses me by withdrawing into endless labyrinths. But in either case, a lure has, another quote, here's a quote, a lure has been proposed for feeling, Whitehead writes, and when admitted into feeling, it constitutes what is felt. When I respond to a lure, and even if I respond to it negatively by rejecting it, I'm led to envision a possibility to, or, as Whitehead says, to entertain a proposition, and thereby to feel something that I would not have felt otherwise. So I'm saying that this kind of aesthetic encounter is where you get it. You feel something which is irreducible to cognition. I think that the question of feeling is central here. It's certainly a central category for Whitehead. Entities do not generally, generally do not know one another, putting that in quotes because I think knowing I agree um, with the basic proposition of object-oriented ontology that knowing is not, would not just be whether I, as subject, know an object, but if the fire and a cotton encounter, as Graham likes to quote, they, to a certain extent, they're trying to know each other, but they fail to completely do this. Harmon is entirely right to say that a thing's reality is irreducible to what is perceived in it, and that when objects meet, they fail to exhaust one another's reality. But in this, fail but this failure, I would say, is not the end of the story. What is suggested entities interact by feeling one another even in the absence of knowledge. Things encounter one another aesthetically and not just cognitively. I always feel more of a thing than I actually know of it, and I feel it otherwise than I know it. To, accept, to the extent that I do know an object, I'm able to put it to use, to enumerate its qualities, to break it down into its constituent parts, and to trace the causes that have determined it. But feeling an object involves something else as well. I feel the thing when it affects me or alters me. And what thus affects me is the thing's total existence, what Harman Sanding Heidegger calls the actus of its being what it is. Or in Whitehead's terms, as with Heidegger's, our always incomplete knowledge of things comes in the form of what he dismisses as the well-marked familiar sense of what he calls presentational immediacy. 
These are the ideas and impressions of the empiricists, the denumerable properties of an object. But, but, but Whitehead argues that things affect one another prior to any sense of presentation of explicit qualities, and this is the mode of, of what Whitehead calls causal efficacy. In this mode, and here's a quote from Process Reality, the influence of ourselves of feelings from enveloping nature overwhelms us. In the dim consciousness of half-sleep, the presentations of sense fade away, and we are left with a vague feeling of influences from vague things around us. So there's a kind of vague feeling of which comes from contact with other entities, which Whitehead argues precedes the kind of clear and distinct presentations of what he calls presentational immediacy, and also which he thinks are much more plausibly attributed to all entities in interaction with all other entities, rather than just to human sensation. So what I want to suggest is that it's only in the realm of what Whitehead calls presentational immediacy that we are actually faced with Harmon's paradoxes of sensual objects that must be distinguished from real ones, and of occasionalism or vicarious causation. In the realm of causal efficacy, on the other hand, we have rather to do with a sort of total contact and promiscuous interchange among objects. These encounters cannot entirely be cognized. They're never clear and distinct, but always leave us, Whitehead says, prey to vague feelings of influence. But the conceptual vagueness of these experiences is not less in their power, quite the contrary. A feeling always involves some alteration of the one who feels. For Whitehead, experience is being. What an entity feels is what that entity is. This means that as a result of entertaining allure, I, mean, I love how Whitehead uses the word entertaining a proposition, entertaining allure. I mean, it means like a logical sense to entertain something is to admit it into consideration in some sense. But I remember when I was a kid and I read Mad Magazine, they had these little cartoons where they take an abstract phrase and draw a kind of silly picture of it. So like entertaining a proposition would be the proposition sitting in a chair and you're doing a song and dance trying to make it feel happier. So I you know, can't get that aspect out of my mind when I talk about this. Anyway, as a result of entertaining a lure, I have somehow been transformed, whether grandly or minutely. I've selected one definite outcome, Whitehead says, from among the penumbral welter of alternatives. As a result, I've become, however slightly or massively, a different entity from the one that I was before this happened. I am no longer the same as I might have been had I not been moved by this particular flash of novelty. Okay, now here's where we need to consider, and this goes back to what Graham was talking about, where I'm disagreeing with him, the question of whether and to what extent an entity does remain the same from one moment to the next. And I want to suggest the answer is sort of the relative one, or a matter of degree. Am I the same person that I was last night, a year ago, ten years ago, when I was a teenager, when I was a baby? Obviously, there are various common ways, sense, common sense ways in which I can say both that I, of course, I am the same person I was last night, and that I'm not. Following Whitehead, I lean towards the second alternative, but again, I think it's a matter, it's a matter of how much do you want something to be changed in order, in order before you say it's a different thing. I don't think there's an easy boundary for that question. Of course, but the way Whitehead resolved to say, of course, I've inherited a great deal from my previous self, so, so there's a great deal of continuity between them and the self that I find myself being now. And this is really Whitehead channeling William James. Um, we have this continuity. I inherit. I exist as an enduring object, is one way Whitehead said, because I'm inheriting all these things from what I was a minute ago, or an hour ago, or a year ago, or 40 years ago. Nonetheless, you know, I, I can't help feeling that I'm a different person now as I read through this talk which I've written than I was before I started to write it. Before I started to write it, I was unable even to vaguely imagine, much less articulate, all the claims and arguments that I've just been making to you. So I've changed in the process of writing this book. It makes as little sense to me to assert that I've remained intact over all this time and the same person. That to me makes as little sense as the opposite extreme, that myself does not really exist and I'm just a ripple in the endless flux of being. Um, I, to restate this in terms where um, both referencing but obviously disagreeing with Graham, 
He distinguishes between two kinds of interactions or vicarious relations among actual separate objects. And this is from world metaphysics. The first kind leaves the objects themselves intact and, quote, merely creates a new relation in the world, which, as Graham was saying, is it's also a new object. The second kind, and another quote from Graham, actually destroys one or more of its components by shattering its notes and ending the very existence of the object to which they belong. And this came up in the question period also. When my own sense is that there are many intermediate degrees between these two alternatives. Okay, and this is this is the way in which I'm trying to think about what White calls enduring objects, by which he means historical words of occasions that massively inherit from one another, and therefore retain a great degree of stability or continuity over time. And and yet without uh, I'm trying I'm, I'm trying to do something which maybe which I think Graham says is impossible and which you know maybe is impossible, but which is to try to suggest the ways of thinking about things not being not being continuous over time, but having discontinuities, and therefore not quite right to saying I'm the same, this is the same substance as it was a minute ago, or an hour ago, or a year ago, without thereby saying the other extreme, which Graham criticizes, that therefore we just have this kind of, we have this kind of endless flux in which nothing is really, no objects are really primary because they're all undermined. Um, so I'm trying to work out, and this is the part where I don't feel I've I mean, I don't feel I've worked it out, and you know, this is obviously future work. How to, to, to maintain Whitehead's commitment to change at the same time as not turning it into what Graham criticizes as the simple undermining of objects altogether. Now, one way to think about this is to look at Whitehead's interest, and this is, again, my literary background coming, Whitehead's interest in romanticism. I think there's more than a hint of romanticism in Whitehead's idea of causal efficacy. And though I'm much less sure here, I mean, I don't know enough about Heidegger about German romanticism to talk about Heidegger's relation to Hildrewin, how it compares to Whitehead's relation to English romantic poets, but I think there might be a similar thing. Anyway, the withdrawal of things into an ever-ramifying network of traces, that first part of the Heidegger account, is, has much in common with early 19th century romantic ideas of nature. Although, in the 21st century, we might link it rather with things like the media sphere or the global financial network or the World Wide Web, I'd say especially as the World Wide Web is in the process of developing into what Bruce Sterling has felicitously called the Internet of Things. Why it makes the link to romanticism explicit, points up the way that, and this is going back to what I was quoting previously from Process of Reality, the irresistible causal efficacy of nature presses itself upon us in the vagueness of the low hum of insects in an August woodland influence into ourselves of feelings from enveloping nature overwhelms us. This vague sense of total envelopment is not peculiar to human beings, Whitehead goes on to say. It sends throughout the natural world and is certainly felt by animals and plants. And indeed, Whitehead claims that even inorganic entities experience something like an influx of feeling in his terms, at least in the form of flows of energy. And he justifies this by saying that for modern physics, all fundamental physical qualities are vector and not scalar. Now, whether that works is something which obviously could be open to future discussion, but let me go on. In, an early, in his, one of his earlier books, Science and the Modern World, Whitehead considers the romantic idea of nature at greater length. He does this in a chapter called The Romantic Reaction, where he talks about, he talks about the romantics as a kind of counterweight to the 18th century mechanistic materialist view of, of, of nature, of the world. And in this is one of the very rare passages in Whitehead where he discusses literary texts instead of philosophical ones. One of the works that Whitehead particularly discusses is Shelley's poem Mont Blanc. Now, for my purposes, it's, this is very convenient because this is, a, this is a text that actually provided William Jones with a title for a short story, The Universe of Things. 
Shelley's poem begins with a description of how the everlasting universe of things flows through the mind. And it continues with a, an evocation of, and here later in the poem, my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings, holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. So Shelley, you can see, is in a kind of correlationist or subject-object paradigm. He's talking about my mind and the universe of things around. But it's not, it's, it's more interesting, I think, in my reading and also in Whitehead's reading than just seeing it sort of versified correlationism. But in the course of his argument made against scientific materialist reductionism, Whitehead remarks that in spite of what he calls the poem's exclusive reference to some form of idealism, nonetheless, he says, Shelley is here an emphatic witness to a prehensive unification as constituting the very being of nature. Now, what does he mean by this? I'm suggesting that when he says, despite its appearance of idealism, we might, it's not too much of a displacement to say it, to, to translate this today and say it's despite its explicit reference to some form of correlationism. But Whitehead's point is that despite Shelley's explicit allegiance to a kind of idealism, and he mentions, he says, whatever, he doesn't know what idealism is, at Plato, is it Barclay? Um, more recent scholarship has shown that Shelley's philosophical influence was really this guy named, I've never read, named William Drummond, who was apparently a disciple of Hume, and Drummond enabled Shelley to take Humean skepticism in the direction of skeptical idealism. So, but it's, it's very much a philosophy based on this, you know, the mind is a blank slate receiving these impressions. And so that's sort of the explicit thinking, philosophy being versified in the poem. But, but nonetheless, Whitehead points out that despite this show his explicit allegiance to this kind of idealism, the rhetoric of the poem actually suggests that actually things themselves, rather than their representations in the form of ideas and impressions of secondary qualities that flow through the mind. So these, the universe of things flows through the mind, and there are other passages where Shelley's rhetoric is, sim is similarly interestingly ambiguous. And this, I think, Whitehead's related to what he says in some passage about Locke. He says Locke sometimes talks about ideas and impressions, but other times Locke says that you know, we actually encounter things. And I think there's an element of that here. Moreover, although Shelley's poem explicitly poses a subject-object binary, um, its rhetoric, again, in various ways, by talking about things, a universe of things, the plural, nonetheless suggests that all entities without exception engage in what Shelley calls the unremitting interchange of rendering and receiving fast influencings. So nature, as Whitehead summarizes this aspect, nature for Shelley is, Whitehead says, in its essence, a nature of organisms, each of them separately perceiving, interacting with, and integrating its feelings of, feelings of all the rest. More generally, in the course of this discussion, Whitehead insists that, and here's in the longer quote, from Whitehead, both Shelley and Wordsworth emphatically bear witness that nature cannot be divorced from its aesthetic values, and that these values arise from accumulation, in some sense, of the brooding presence of the whole onto its various parts. Now, that's a very difficult phrase, but I want to try to unpack it. And here's where I come back to what I mentioned before, the question of conceptualizing the romantics, conceptualizing nature as a whole, and how this might be seen as what Harmon calls the undermining of objects, their dissolution into a continuous flux of becoming, as Harmon sees, as Harmon feels is the case with the philosophies of Bergson, Deleuze, and Ian Hamilton Grant. For Harmon, these thinkers stand in sharp opposition to Whitehead, because Whitehead always insists that there can be no continuity of becoming, and the ultimate metaphysical truth is atomism. Okay, I, I, I'm going to avoid, again, going more deeply into the reading of Bergson, Deleuze, and Grant, but I, but I think it's striking that Whitehead talks about this sort of totality, even though he very much at the same time insists on, on, on the ultimate metaphysical truth being atomism. And that the way Whitehead works, works this through, the contradiction between atomism and flux is not as great as it might appear. 
Whitehead says there is no continuity of becoming. That's his rejection of Bergson. He says, but there is a becoming of continuity. So continuity is continually being produced out of this continuity. The brooding presence of the whole of nature, in Whitehead's phrase, is itself something that's produced in the course of the interplay among a multitude of separate entities, continually influencing one another. That is to say, the whole refers to my feeling of things and not to the actual things themselves. It's an experiential condition rather than an ontological one. It's a matter of aesthetic response rather than one of cognition. Nature cannot be divorced from its aesthetic values because it is through these values that we are affected by it and that we participate in it. Objects have not actually melted into one another, but they all impinge on me together under the conditions of what Whitehead calls causal efficacy. I am unable to clearly distinguish the elements influencing me or to separate them out from one another. Precisely because the feeling that nature inspires in me is so overwhelming and yet so vague, I cannot easily break it down into its separate components. So, again, I mean, Whitehead says in general, when he talks about his theory of prehensions, that um, prehension is a kind of unification, or he doesn't use the word totalization, but it's a unification. An entity, when it comes to it, it unifies every, all its experiences, so that includes getting rid of some and rearranging them, and, and so on and so forth. And the universe is made one, I can't remember that phrase, something like the universe goes one, but also is added, the things are added to by one. So you have this unification, but this unification itself becomes not a kind of total flux, but another entity, which then goes into a play with others. So, and so this, the importance of this vague sense of, sense of a totality, which you get under causal efficacy, is that this is a mode of interaction which is non-epistemic, which is aesthetic rather than epistemological, and which itself turns into another entity. So the interpenetration and accumulation of things in nature or in a network is a reasonable, but there's, there's more to it again. Whitehead's interest in how this works as a kind of aesthetic or as a kind of experience of feelings. This interpenetration of things in nature or in the network is the reason why, as Whitehead concedes, we often experience causal efficacy, as he says, in the form of vague terrors. We're made uneasy because we can't fully discern the things that are impinging upon us. We feel them without quite knowing what they are. Things are just too suffocatingly close for me to be able to distinguish them clearly from one another or even from myself. This intimacy of things can even seem obscene and directly menacing, as does in Jones's short story. You might think of Marshall McLuhan here as well, who in his account of oral culture or network culture similarly suggests that terror is a normal state of a situation in which everything affects everything all the time. Okay, so I'm trying to see how we it, it, it is intelligible, and this is by disagreeing with Brack, to see everything as affecting everything all the time without this undermining objects and saying that the objects themselves get dissolved into a flux. Terror, in the sense, is a kind of inverse, like a photographic negative of the way in which entities, according to Whitehead, commonly constitute and differentiate themselves. In the universe of things, my knowledge of the things that I encounter always lags behind the effects that these things have on me or the feelings that they inspire in me. I feel a thing without actually knowing it, both when it bursts forth in allure and when it slips away in metamorphosis. And regardless of knowledge, all these feelings of individual things are accumulated, they're integrated in a mathematical sense, or they're synthesized in a vaguely Kantian or Galician sense, in the process by which an entity becomes what it is. That is to say, accumulation or prehensive unification is for Whitehead an aesthetic process and not an already given situation. It's a conclusion, not a starting point. So the are the white argument here would be that all entities without exception form the double movement of the Lord's metamorphosis, of bursting forth and slipping away, displaying their absolute singularity in a more and retreating into a maze of references and transformations. In Whitehead's language, here's another long quote from Whitehead, the antithesis between publicity and privacy obtrudes itself at every stage. 
There are elements only to be understood by reference to what is beyond the fact in question, and there are elements expressive of the immediate, private, personal, individuality of the fact in question. For Whitehead, this means that all entities are able at once to retain their separate identities and yet to all belong to what he calls a common world. And here's some more quotes from Science of the Modern World. The actual elements perceived by our senses are in themselves the elements of a common world. This world is a complex of things, including indeed our active transit of cognition, but transcending them. Where the actual things experienced enter into a common world which transcends knowledge, though it includes knowledge. We find ourselves always already, the always already is mine, but the rest of it is, is whitehead, within a world of colors, sounds, and other sense objects related in space and time to enduring objects such as stones, trees, and human bodies. We seem to be ourselves elements of this world in the same sense as are the other things which we perceive. So things in their privacy remain distinct from one another, but in their publicity they are all, in the same sense, elements of, the, of one common world. And this alone is, I think, is what makes what Levi Bryan beautifully calls a democracy of objects possible. Or to give Whitehead's formulation of a similar idea, and he does this explicitly referencing again William James, we find ourselves, Whitehead writes, in a buzzing world amid a democracy of fellow preachers. Okay, so um, I'd like to conclude by making a few points which are sort of, I mean, this which I would have done except this which took up the whole essay was kind of a prolegomenon, is that, or prolegomenon to, to a further consideration. Um, so a few further points about the democracy of fellow creatures or the universe of things. The first point has to do with the fact that I've been using the first person freely described as a talk about my experience and and how I experience objects and so on and so forth. And what I want to suggest that on the one hand, this the whole point of what Whitehead's saying and also what Harmon is saying is precisely that this is not something which is just for sentient human subjects. It's something which applies to all entities in their interactions with all other entities. Um, so so it's, it involves all entities rather than being strictly human phenomenology. But treating things in this way unavoidably involves some some sort of some sort of anthropomorphism. Um, I'm trying to argue. I mean, this came up last fall, the previous time I visited Georgia Tech, when Ian gave his talk, Alien Phenomenology. Um, there was a question afterward, and somebody said something like, "Well, you know, you're, you're talking about the chair's point of view, but the chair doesn't have a point of view. It's not like we have points of view. The chair doesn't have a point of view." And I think the argument here is that the chair does have a point of view. Okay, um, it's not a linguistic point of view, but unless the chair has a point of view. Um, now, to a certain extent, this means that we have a certain degree of anthropomorphism in the description, but I am trying to agree with Jane Bennett, who, I like Jane Bennett's recent book because she sort of crystallized a lot of stuff which I was feeling vaguely, I'm not going to talk about vague feelings in this, but which she kind of crystallized me in a way I could not have enunciated myself. She's, as she puts it, maybe it's worth running the risks associated with anthropomorphism, superstition, the divinization of nature, or medicine because it oddly enough works against anthropocentrism. So I would argue also that, and that to a certain extent we're saying, we're, I mean you can't make this argument without saying in a certain sense stones and trees and you know, electrons and, George, and entities like Georgia Tech are doing some of the same things that individual human beings are doing. So you can't avoid it, but I think Taking the risk of doing this is a way to avoid an anthropocentrism, saying that we're the only ones who do that, and therefore it's only our relation to other things which matter. So I think there's a strategic way in which you can use the first person, as I was using some of my descriptions, which also I think is not unrelated to the strategic way that Graham uses phenomenology to get beyond phenomenology's human centeredness. 
Okay, so um, so there's a certain sense of that of that which is inevitable in trying to talk about this. And but I don't think again, I don't think we need to be. You know, when I was in graduate school, you can never say, well, you just. Talk. I mean, it's, it's a variety of saying if you mention if you think about something that is no longer reflective because you're thinking about it, or if you talk about something that's no longer unexpectedly linguistic because you're doing, talking about it in language. I think you have to work with that rather than say that it's a limit and say we, we're crippled in a sense that we can only do it from a certain, from using language, from being anthropocentric to a certain extent, but if we do it the right way, then we can slide away from being anthropocentric and having that be stuck in that way. Um, what this kind of, what this kind of implies though is that there's a certain sense in which all entities, not just living things, are vital and sentient. And this has to do with a development of what I've been thinking of as kind of neo-vitalism. This is another thing which Bennett picks up in her books. She talks about Hans Driesch, who was a turn of the early 19th century, early 20th century vitalist, who basically starts out with the classic 19th century vitalistic argument that vitalism is some kind of special inner force which differentiates living things from non-living things. Um, I think, but, but at the end, Driesch almost emphasizes that that this is not true, and that ultimately all, all things, all entities, all objects are have a kind of vital force to them. So it seems clear to me that a, a neo-vitalism would involve not the 19th century opposition between what's alive and what's not alive, but a sense that this would apply to, to all matter or to all entities or of, of whatever scale. Now, obviously, that leads to some bizarre counterintuitive results, but this is where my point where I'll try to push the bizarre, because what that leads to in, in, in in the last instance, it's not just a kind of vitality which would be common to all and to all entities, but to a certain. But I think you need to extend this, as I was saying, if the chair has a point of view, you need to extend some sort of pan panpsychism or pan experientialism. Now, this kind of panpsychism, as Grant Grant mentioned, has a very bad reputation. It seems like a totally bizarre. You know, whenever I mention this, people say, "Oh, tell me what conversation the two electrons had." They're, they're both sentient entities. You know, I mean, it's easy to make fun of, but I think David Skirina has, number one, pointed out how, how deeply rooted this is in Western thought. It's not just a kind of bizarre mania, whether even if it's totally false or wrong, it has a sort of honorable pedigree in the history of Western thought. Um, secondly, the, you know, again, this has to do with the same thing as anthropocentrism. We're thinking that if we think well, everything must think in some ways, but they don't necessarily think quite the way we do. I mean, there are various ways, and then again, an unwritten article, though it comes in a little bit to my book, but what I want to work on next would be an article which would expand this by thinking how Whitehead not only suggests a kind of pan-experientialism or pan-psychism, but sort of puts it in a different way than other thinkers do. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I'm very kind of interested in this analytic philosopher, Galen Strawson, who basically, He's a total reductionist. He thinks physics is right. The universe is just composed of microscopic particles. as the only real entities. But he also says all these entities must think because you know it's easy to explain why well, life comes from not living things because we understand the chemistry. But you can't make an explanation this for consciousness. So therefore, it must already exist. Now, I mean, there's a lot I disagree with in that kind of argument, but I think there's something working there which is worth probing more. So that's um, so, so that's that's just a side note. So that's. The stuff which I was originally going to write for this talk, which I didn't get to. But just to conclude, um, the, there's, a, there's a certain sense in which aesthetic experience, I'm saying the basic, if I'm agreeing with Graham, but in a different sense, that aesthetic experience is the basic mode of interaction among entities. Aesthetic experience involves something on the side of the experience, of 
it's asymmetrical and it involves a certain kind of saying that one entity has an experience of another entity. And this, the sense of, in which you want to talk about experience is still open, but I think, again, Whitehead incorporates these clues as to try to think of how even physical interchanges among subatomic particles can be thought of as spiritual in a certain way. Um, so when the flame burns a cotton, we must ask what flame and cotton are experiencing. Um, so the question would be that not only is anthropomorphism unavoidable as kind of strategy, but there's a certain sense in which it gets at a larger truth, which is that a certain type of experiencing or of point of view is present in for any entity to have this feeling of the rest of the other entities and some kind of, it has to have some kind of experience of it. And that this is sort of the direction which we need to go if we want to think more about the reality of objects. That's it. And second, more generally, um, about, about the role of aesthetics uh, that it might have, or does it have a new, a different kind of role in relation to object or ontology? Okay, well, for the science fiction, should I get the microphone or is this fine? For the science fiction, I mean, that's, you know, I do a lot of work on science fiction. It's a major part of of, of what I do. I mean, I'm, I'm actually spread over various disciplines. I am mostly, um, as, as a faculty member at the Wayne State University, I teach film studies, so film and media studies, but I sort of branch out into other things. Um, but anyway, science fiction is really important to me. I read a lot of it, and again, I find it hard to generalize about science fiction because there's so much different stuff, and we include not just hardcore science fiction, but sort of speculative fiction, fantasy, and things. So there's a lot of stuff, but I do find that it's a way of speculating about about issues which affect us in all sorts, but most obviously would be technologically, but also social, socially, and also I'd say ontologically. Um, the advantage of science fiction to sort of more mainstream literary fiction these days to me is precisely that, I mean again, you get 
the famous science fiction writer Theodore Sturgeon said, when it asked, said, but isn't 95% of science fiction crap? said, 95% of everything is crap. And, you know, but what you get in good science fiction, at least I find, is again that it's not sort of bogged down in, in, in sort of just talking about, you know, my miserable interiority. It's, it, they often have characters and, and anxiety and dilemmas and, you know, existential crisis and stuff like that, but it's always put in a different context because of the extrapolation or fant fantasizing that go on. So in interesting or powerful science fiction, I find that they deal with that a lot of issues which get swept up under the rug otherwise actually come out, and sometimes it's the explicit concern of the writer to do it, sometimes not, but I mean, this includes both speculation about philosophical things about the nature of the world, as well as speculation about economic, social, and technological developments and how they might affect society and individual experience. Okay, so that's the first half. The second half of your question was? Is there a, is, is aesthetics a, yeah, I've been trying, okay, aesthetics, yeah, I mean, um, again, I'm probably doing this in a different way. Graham has, and ends his essay on vicarious causation, which came out in Collapse, Volume 2, with the wonderful statement that in this way, aesthetics becomes first philosophy. And I immediately glommed onto that because that sort of relates to stuff I've been trying to work out, mostly through Whitehead, through both Deleuze and Whitehead over the years, in different ways, which is that, um, Part of my argument in my book on Whitehead and also in stuff I published earlier was that there's a certain sense in which interesting trends in 20th century philosophy pick up on the moment of aesthetics in, in Kant, precisely because what's so interesting about the third critique is that that's where there's the stuff which gets left out. It's the stuff you can't talk about in the terms either of the first critique, you can't cognize them, you can't associate them with norms or, or imperatives or, or whatever. It's, it's sort of a proto-theory of singularity. So if you're going to take serious, it's sort of a serious area where the categories, which are so important to Kant, sort of break down. And there's also a sense in which one thing which Deleuze writes about at several points, which I've found very interesting, is he talks about the, sun, the need to repair the sundering of the two senses of aesthetics. And here again, he's referring to a whole tradition, but especially to Kant, because the first half of the the first part of the first critique is transcendental aesthetic, and then the third, the first half of the second, third critique is critique of aesthetic judgment. So, on one hand, aesthetics means sensibility, our basic experience of sensibility in, in, in space and time, and on the other hand, it means particular works of art and how they affect us. And Deleuze is always interested this to be a way of bringing those both both together. So, I guess I've been interested in the way in which, prior to cognition, what White calls feeling or what can be called in many other ways by other figures, is a way which maybe aesthetic theory has given us the best ways to describe better than epistemological theories. Almost that big. Yeah. Could I weigh in here? That yes, please. And I, I also got to join in uh, Montreal and Shelley, and I want to go back to the lures for feeling yeah. and the lure of Whitehead and this aesthetic issue, and I said, Pache, Kant, stick him on the side because what I think links up rather wonderfully uh, with Graham's uh, 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 paper this morning is something that has really been denigrated, I think, by, uh, well, even analytic philosophers, and that is 18th century theory of associationism. Mm -hmm. What is the 18th century? I mean, it is a much, much deeper theory than it's usually given uh, any credence to. What is it but precisely about 
um, uh, this kind of vast sea of influences, if I'm quoting yeah. from that, and about these lures for feeling uh, that also have, if there are any scientists, biologists, uh, there's a wonderful book by George Hertzey called The Lure, mm -hmm. uh, which um, actually roots aesthetics and sexuality. I mean, these mm -hmm. kinds of uh, attractions that have yeah. um, uh, their roots in evolution, in evolutionary theory. But um, at, at, one, uh, at one level, I mean, I think uh, if one thinks about the theory of objects and this object-related ontology, in a way, it makes one, I, I think one has to look again and see a deeper theory of associationism, one that is non-theological, but that tries to get at the same problem of um, what is it that attracts or repels, I mean, the question earlier about destruction. So I just okay, well, that I, that's a, that, that, a counter-aesthetic yeah. theory, because the aesthetic object is an object um, that has greater saliency. It has greater singularity. Mm -hmm. It has greater draw. Yeah, so that's the, that's that that's that's a great tangle of questions. I don't think it's just one. I mean, I'm not sure how I think about 18th century association relationships. I mean, a lot of what I'm working from comes from William James's critique of 18th century association, but which Whitehead very much picks up on. Again, I would really say if this is our topic, man. You got to get this again. Well, you're probably right. I mean, but I, I the only thing I say is that what I really have to do, according to Whitehead, is not go back to Hume and go back to Locke. Yeah. Okay, but sure. you know, I, which I I don't know Locke very well, and I haven't. But anyway, so I'm not sure I'm dodging your part of that 18th century association. The other part, I think, yes, well, I think. James gets it also. Yeah. But he has, yes, but he has, you know, but he has this. I mean, well, anyway, I, as far as I can see, Whitehead picks up James's criticisms of classic association. But anyway, the part about science again, Whitehead is talking about Romanticism as a sort of counter-movement to the excesses of 18th century mechanistic materialism. But again, thinking about the most, I mean, I'm very, I'm actually one of the things I'm very strongly interested in is contemporary theories of biology. And again, you have a kind of mainstream neo-Darwinian synthesis, but you have a lot of kind of contesting or alternative views, and you have also bizarre experimental results. I mean, one of the problems, I mean, this is something um, with, which I'm hoping to hear more from by Graham because Graham's writing, you know, has been critiquing sort of scientific reductionist moves which have taken place both among analytic philosophers and in speculative realism to some extent. But the thing is that, you know, you have, when you have like cognitive scientists talk about, <coughs> cognitive philosophers talk about science, they don't really, they, they, they sort of ignore what's really weirdly going, interesting, what's weird about say neurobiology. And I've become, I mean, part of, I've become obsessed with recent scientific studies of cognition in, in you know, other organisms. I mean, there's fruit fly, I mean, there was recently an article which was sort of a little silly, but not totally not to be paraphrased as fruit flies have free will. Um, there have been people write about the cogni cognitive, co cognition in organisms that don't have brains at all, like plants and slime molds and stuff, um, and bacteria. I'm totally fascinated by this, and again, I. I sort of think there are different degrees of complexity, but at some points you can't draw the line which absolutely separates living things from non-living things. We've already sort of scientists have already said that you don't need a brain for these processes to occur. And so I mean so 
Well, you get yeah. also into robotics here. I mean, yeah, yeah. Say too. I mean, so, like again, I mean, my main feeling about that is that all that stuff's very rich, and what I would want to do, or what I'm arguing philosophically, is that we have to see that affectively as well as cognitively. And that's where I'm drawing on Whitehead and also where. But you've already got Damasio there. I mean, Damasio yeah, sure. there is no cognition without feeling. Well, that, yeah. I mean, Damasio is not a very good philosopher, but he's exclusively drawing on Spinoza and, and yeah. you know, in yeah. interesting well, ways. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, so, I mean, again, I'm thinking about, you know, how you could supplement cognitive accounts by talking more about feeling and this in a very broad sense, which would link up to people like Ledoux and Damasio in neurobiology, would also link up to other kinds of affective theories which have applied to human behavior, but which right. might be applied elsewhere and ultimately to a kind of ontological level. And so far, it seems to me that aesthetics is the most it's the discourse within traditional philosophy, which most, even though most aestheticians don't realize this, which is actually dealing with thinking about things from this kind of angle. So, um, I, I have a question, if, uh, if you don't mind me jumping in. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back to your point earlier in your paper when you were talking about how you couldn't envision the paper at the beginning yeah. of writing it, and you became something else over the course of writing it. And I, I thought one way of, of situating this that might be rather interesting would be in terms of three types of propositions. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we have the analytic a posteriori, or yeah. priori propositions, the synthetic a posteriori, and mm -hmm. uh, the synthetic a priori. And uh, the analytic a priori, of course, don't teach us anything. Yeah. They're just matters of definition. Yeah. The synthetic a posteriori, they amplify our knowledge in mm -hmm. some interesting way. And the synthetic a priori propositions are so weird because they amplify our knowledge in some way, but it's like pulling a rabbit out of the hat, right? Yeah. Uh, without first putting the rabbit in that mm -hmm. hat. Uh, you know, the empiricists say nothing can be pulled out of the hat unless it's yeah. put in there through experience. What was so remarkable about Kant's synthetic a priori propositions wasn't yeah. that it solved this problem of causality in some way or another, mm -hmm. but this idea of being able to think something or develop something that didn't come from experience or didn't uh, come yeah. from elsewhere. So, you know, I was wondering if you might situate this a bit in terms of Whitehead, because <clears throat> Whitehead, when you talk about integrations, he doesn't seem to be that far from David Hume. Mm -hmm. Hume still gives us the or grants the possibility of the mind arranging impressions that it's received from experience in a variety of ways, creating something new on the basis of that. But can we think of objects changing themselves without any prior sort of apprehension of the world around them, of developing something new within yeah. the objects? Because I think if you want this sort of neo-vitalism, mm -hmm. uh, that at least would be consistent with object-oriented philosophy, yeah. you have to ontologize this and grant this kind of power of self-change to yeah. objects that isn't simply mm -hmm. an integration of the outer world. Yes, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that kind of position. I mean, to art, in my book on Whitehead, I sort of argue that, I try to do this delisting of these two sets of aesthetics, and I sort of argue that um, basically Whitehead has no use for, the, for Kant's categories, but it does have some use for some transformation of the transcendental aesthetic, the conditions of sensibility, passive which is what, which is also where Deleuze gets this notion of passive synthesis. Mm -hmm. And I think this has to do with the fact that, I mean, this is something I've argued with Graham about, but that um, Whitehead says that a thing gets what it is by pretending other things, but it also, he also says that 
any entity makes a decision in a, in a certain sense which is, is, is selective, transformative, and aesthetic. And that's why it does not merely repeat. I mean, he, he says maybe one way to understand you know, life and non-life is that as you go sort of down the scale, you get less innovation, less novelty, and more repetition. But, you, but when you go up the scale, you find, more, you find more genesis of novelty, more insistence upon transformation. And this is something, I mean, it's, it's, it's a circular thing for Whitehead because the entity doesn't perceive the decision it makes by which it, 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 it makes this choice. The entity makes this choice of decision, but it doesn't exist prior as a, as a subject prior to the moment of making the choice. So, I mean, it's, that's why he calls it a superject rather than a subject. And anyway, I mean, so that's, I, we, we've gone for hours talking about Whitehead, obviously. And um, again, I, I, so I'm basically agree with you, and I'm saying this is probably the area where I am in disagreement with, yeah, with Graham about relations. Aesthetics yeah. are already there in certain yeah. The now there's a passage in Process and Reality where Whitehead says that that he thought of what he was doing as turning Kant's third critique into a critique of pure feeling, which would obviate the necessity for the first two critiques. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of a joke, but I mean, I think, I think it, it's well, a yeah, different point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you just stepped all over my question. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. But so, so I'm going to phrase more as a statement then, because something we we'll probably ought to be thinking through. Uh, you know, in many ways, Steve, your 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 paper was was you know a discussion of, of Graham's work and, and drawn some distinctions out. Uh, and I think you know sort of sort of that, that interesting moment we can make here is 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 uh, a statement that Graham made a little bit earlier, which is is a relation. Wait, wait a second. I wrote this one down. I wrote it down. Uh, there's no change if it's all relational. Some, some, you know, a, a version of that phrase, which, which you make in, in, in the score book. Uh, and, and I think this, this problem of change is, is, is kind of the heart of, the, of, of a distinction that we're going to have to come to some understanding between you know, how do a relationalist account for change, which is what Stephen was just talking about, in relation to an object-oriented ontologist. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, so while you were talking, I kept thinking, lures for feeling, um, you know, the, these are prods towards some forms of transformation. So, so what is the actual status of the lure for feeling? Uh, is, again, this is not so much a question as a kind of a way of trying to stay out where we seem to be at this moment. Maybe, I don't know, does that seem like a fair characterization? Um, I'm, inclined, I'm inclined to say that Graham's work operates as a lure for my feelings. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, what I was, I mean, what I was really trying to do here was, I mean, I've already argued, we've, I, Graham and I have already argued, and I'm not sure we've reached a point where, where we can, I don't think we can either change each other's minds, I think we've reached a point where, you know, we've fairly well clarified what the disagreements are, and everybody will vote to read that in a few months when the speculative turn comes out, but um, my, what I was trying to do here was, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's tricky, especially with Graham sitting in the audience and with us having heard him just before me, but I'm trying to, not so much talk about here's my disagreement, this is why I disagree, and this is why he's wrong and I'm right, as to say, well, I do disagree with him, but I've drawn a lot from him, I've gotten a lot, so I want to take the stuff I've gotten from him and show how it possibly inflects what I'm thinking about, even though that leads me to a different place in which I do have, would have these, do have these disagreements with him. And so that's the best answer I can give to that. Uh, I keep coming back to this image of the dancing proposition. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so we were just talking about this anthropomorphism thing yeah. for the 
talk. So I guess that's that's sort of my question is to invite you to talk more about how how does anthropomorphism, that is seeing the world in our image or in our shape, lead us away from anthropocentrism, seeing the world as there for us, for our use, for our benefit. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of preempting your response, but I'm wondering, like with the dancing proposition, like I wonder if some idea of, of the absurd, the weird, or the surreal in Breton's classical sense is a way of doing that because it also details into the synthetic Well, no, I, I mean, I certainly think that, that, that there's, there's something to that. I mean, I, I draw, I mean, Graham's mentioned on his blog how Lovecraft is one of his favorite authors, and there was an, one of the issues of class they had. Was that the issue you were in, where they had several articles about Whitehead? Uh, about, about, about Lovecraft, excuse me? Yes. <laughs> Was that the issue you were in? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, mean I, I very much think that, you know, I mean, maybe this is partly my background as somebody comes originally from literature and now does film, so, you know, I'm, my institutional position is, is, is doing expressive arts, not doing philosophy. Um, I find, you know, I, I find, you know, works, aesthetic works, useful as tools for thought, as Sherry Turkle called them, you know, particularly on computers, but I mean, in, in general. I think there are ways of posing these, these questions which might not come up explicitly in philosophical discourse without it, I and mean, that's why Whitehead, even though he doesn't do it very often, reverts to, say, romantic poetry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it would include some nature, I mean, surreal, I mean, part of what, part of, you know, Part of the genesis of my whole talk is, you know, I only read um, Gwyneth Jones' short story in the past year, but it resonated with stuff which has come in lots of other speculative fiction or horror fiction or whatever I've read over the years. And it's always, um, you, know, you know, these moments of transformation, metamorphosis, when, when the universe seems to come alive and how terrifying this can be, is, is, is something I've had an obsession with for years. And again, I think it's through Graham that he started to think of this maybe in a different philosophical way. I mean, Graham, when he writes about Levinas, talks about Levinas's notion of the Ilia, the Laris, which is his sort of version of Heidegger's uh, S. Gift, but which also communicates very much with Maurice Blanchot's fiction, which I wrote about in the past. And Graham says the trouble is that Levinas sees you know, everything besides the human as being just, again, this undifferentiated, I don't think it's a lumpy part, but it's something else, but it's Maybe sludge or slime would be a better one for this, but you know. So, uh, so I was in. I've long been. So I was. That made me think. It's interesting to think about this experience of, you know, this this Ilya or this be of this becoming or of this you know, insistence of entities which are alien, not be thought of as an undifferentiated mass, but you know, thinking of as things in the plural, which are specific in a certain way. So, and I think that does lead us into what China Naval following Lovecraft calls weird fiction. So among it's not the only genre. I mean, there are many modes of science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I continually find them in various ways useful to to juxtapose with more philosophical or, or theoretical kind of discussions. Um, I also wanted to ask about the anthropomorphism, but your your discussion of the story at the beginning and at the end. Um, and that now you've given on expressive arts brings up something I hope we'll continue to see, yeah. which is this notion of um, how the arts can provide us insight into OOO. And in particular, some of your discussion reminded me of a conversation with an artist recently who was asking the question, how would a machine swear? 
-hmm. with the with, with the realization that most most of our swears have to do with bodily functions. Yeah. So, what would it mean for a machine then to swear? And and the interesting thing though was that this artist was not only asking this question but yeah. trying to answer mm -hmm. it through the construction of a system that would find some way to express itself in machine yeah. terms, um, which you know, what's up? which gives me the question. So it. it I agree that anthropomorphism can allow us to, to see the world in a different way, but at the same time, it also seems like what you're suggesting is that we might need another term. Well, so sure. My question and, is, yeah. what is that term? Well, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, anthrop again, anthropomorphism, it has to be used with caution. It can't be just, I'm not saying that we should just blindly go ahead and be as anthropomorphic as we, as we please, and that we won't get into trouble if we do that. But, I mean, again, I think what anthropomorphism does, and the reason somebody like did use it, it's just sort of like, I mean, it gets us away from saying only we see things, only we have feelings, only we have cognitions, and so on and so forth. It it it, it forces us to think that it, this is not a, again, this is not something which is peculiar to human beings and not peculiar to the human relation to an outside world. So it seems to me that it helps to get at an object-oriented approach precisely because it, 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 it takes away from presumption this is something special which only human beings or maybe only rational beings of a certain you know, pure type are able to, able to do. I mean, you know, sure, but again, I think it's the opposite extreme. I mean, again, you know, so Descartes says we have souls and animals and just machines because we don't have souls and, you know, I mean, it's sort of the opposite. It's sort of the opposite of that. So, yeah, but I, I don't know. I, you're right that I, I think the yeah. challenge to, yeah. is to think about what is that next term that needs Again, to be I, 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 yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, anthropomorphism in the sense is a tool. It's not what we want to ultimately end up with. And I mean, where this will lead, I, I don't know. But I think, I do kind of think that speculative fiction as well as philosophy might be able to help us to go in that direction. Yeah, I mean, my, my answer to that problem is much more to speak of Bennett's, I think, which is that things are things-centric. So it's no surprise that we would be anthropocentric and we would express that through anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the kind of uh, encounter that, that Graham calls metaphor. So you know, the rock is petrocentric and you know, it's, it's not an issue, it's not an ontological issue for mm -hmm. me in that respect. Uh, the, the, the issue would be thinking that the only kind of centrism is anthropocentric. Well. I do want to, you know, do petromorphism as well as anthropomorphism. Right, and then you just need to come up with these lovely words to sound the red. Does anybody have any other questions? Uh, so we're out there. Yeah. I was just going to say, first of all, this is great. Everyone should have a good fortune to be criticized by Stephen Shapiro. He has this way of making you look good. He makes these slicing your ideas apart. Parts I'd like to reread, because I don't think I got them unless so fast, but one about the difference between presentational immediacy and also advocacy, and also the part about integrating the word metamorphosis. But I guess I just have a question about metamorphosis, because yeah. one of our disagreements in that exchange that will appear in this paper of the turn is that you're saying that concept of the is the ghost of the sublime, whereas Whitehead allows more for concept of beauty. He, he calls beauty kind of in contrast. Yeah. Somewhere. And my objection to that was always that a lot of things would be called pattern contrast mm -hmm. and necessarily beautiful. And, and I wonder if, I like the fact that you have this term metamorphosis now, which I don't think you have. Yeah, no, I, too. I did it. I, I did metamorphosis as a counterpart to a lore precisely because I didn't want to get stuck in the sublime and the beautiful. I mean, which is, again, I'm coming from that because of Kant and because that's been so central to aesthetics since the 18th century. But, and I mean, in terms of when I said that a lore was like the sublime, 
Um, I mean, in your, what you call lower cycle sublime, I mean, again, I, I, it's not that I'm, I'm not necessarily retreating from that, but I'm not sure it's the most useful way to think about it anymore. I mean, one part of it is, you know, we've talked about this. I read, I, I read this book, which um, Latour and Stengers love, Surio's the Different Modes of Existence. And I couldn't make very much out of it. I still don't feel I understand what it is that Latour and and Stengers see is so great about it, though it may well be my, you know, my not getting it enough. But what that book did make me think about was just thinking about different modes, and that you know, instead of saying everything's either sublime or beautiful, or in the 18th century also picturesque, but we should think there's there are different modes without necessarily thinking that there are just these two modes. So sublime and the beautiful are aesthetic modes, maybe many other aesthetic modes. So. You know, that's why I'm trying to get away now from having that it be kind of binary, which I think it was in the article I wrote before about your, about your work. Uh, so it's, uh, okay, it's, uh, okay. so it's the system you're either mm -hmm.